0: Hello, you are listening to practicing gospel. I'm David Rayburn. It excites me to share with you young people taking up the work of our Lord and the work of the church and using their creativity and innovative ideas to move us forward. One such young person is my guest today. Dr. David Bjorlin is Assistant professor of worship at North Park University in Chicago, Illinois. David prepares his students for lives of significance and service by guiding and equipping them with practical skills centered around worship. He believes that what and how we worship forms the people we are and the way we interact with the world. As Assistant Chapel Coordinator at North Park and the Pastor of Worship and Creative Arts at the Resurrection Covenant Church, David incorporates his experiences into the classroom by combining theory, practice, and reflection. Framing his classes through a city-centered lens, David emphasizes that to understand worship, one must first understand location. He aims to teach students the importance of learning what it means to be a Christian living in a particular city surrounded by different cultures. In this episode, David and I talk about and listen to some of the hymns he has written and discuss his scholarship related to contemporary worship music. So welcome, David. Thank you for being with me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Why don't we begin by letting you tell your own journey, uh, your spiritual journey, especially as it's led you into... uh, being a church musician and a, and a hymn writer.
1: Yep. So my dad is a Pentecostal pastor. He's retired now and we grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. And so I was always in the church as you might imagine. And we were very, um, musically inclined family. So by the time I was in kindergarten, I was playing violin. And that led to me playing violin in the church orchestra when those still existed, uh, especially in Pentecostal churches. Um, And then I started playing saxophone and piano and those things and was in worship bands throughout. You know, this was when in the 90s when praise and worship was very ascendant. I mean, basically had ascended in... Um, charismatic Pentecostal churches, evangelical churches. Um, my church was also very conservative, um, and that was kind of the piece that didn't fit me. I couldn't have said this at the time, but there was this always a sense that something was off with me. <laughs> uh, and part of it, I think, was because I took everything so seriously and literally. So when you heard, oh... Uh, you're going to be left behind in the rapture, for example. You know, my brother could kind of sit there and just be like, oh, whatever, you know, didn't really face him. I was a kid that took that all in and was like, I'm going to be left behind. You know, this is going to happen to me. I need to save all my friends. Um, And so that became more and more of a burden. And it was in my 10th grade grade, uh summer that I decided not to go to the bible camp I went to and my parents were great about it and they said yeah that's fine but you should go to a a camp probably to get me out of the house for a week you know um and so I went to this camp that the covenant park that was part of the evangelical covenant church and that was pretty revolutionary for me. It was the first time I felt like I'd asked some of the questions that i have been thinking about, like women in ministry, um, how does this work with God? What, you know, just those kind of intellectual questions I had that were always kind of answered by, well, here's the Bible verse, which wasn't always the most satisfying of answers, especially when the Bible verse didn't have to, seem to have anything to do with what I was talking about. Um, and, the speaker that year was a guy named Todd Selecta, and he worked at a small Bible college called Covenant Bible College in La Merced, Ecuador, which was about a half hour outside of Quito, Ecuador. And I talked to him after the service, made my friends come the next night, two of them, and all three of us spent our first year of college down at. Covenant Bible College, Ecuador. Um, And that was really the place I started changing between that and going to Chicago and going to North Park University, which is now where I teach. um, They were very involved at that time in that kind of evangelical social justice movement. So people like Jim Wallace, um, Tony Campolo, Ron Sider, these people that were challenging us to say, OK, if you say you take the Bible seriously, uh, here's some verses you might want to consider, you know, these thousand on the economy, you know, how do you talk about race? How do you think about uh, social justice more generally? And that was really transformative that and living in Chicago and realizing, you know, there's plenty of people trying to pull themselves up by bootstraps, um, but it isn't working and there's bigger systemic issues here. And that's really when I made my kind of political and theological transformation uh, to move beyond Jesus and me to this understanding of uh, God working in the world and me being part of that work, Uh, you know, as our tradition is fond of saying, the Swedish Pietist tradition, for God's glory and neighbor's good.
0: Well, so how how did you carry on with music?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So in college, I just was on one of the worship teams and kept doing what I did, played piano and sang, basically, and played in the jazz band at North Park. Um, I got my teaching degree, history and secondary ed, and quite soon was like, I do not want to be a high school teacher. (laughs) It was a lot less content than I expected and a lot more classroom management, which was never my foretaste or, yeah, strength. And... So right after I graduated, I didn't have the kind of imagination that I could just stay in Chicago and like work as a barista or something. I felt like I needed to have a career and I knew it wasn't teaching. So I was like, I guess I go home, I don't know. And then out of the blue, a pastor in Iowa called me and said, I have this church, we're trying to do something new. Would you be interested in maybe doing music? And I had never really wanted to work in a church because my dad was a pastor. Um, but it seemed better than my parents' basement at the time and why I thought those were only the two options. I don't know. So I ended up going and I found that I had a sort of, uh, knack for it and enjoyed the conversations we were having. So that second year I was leading worship, I made it a seminary, uh, internship and then went to seminary and it was really at seminary that I also moved from this kind of Uh, Contemporary praise and worship, not moved from, but widened to include hymnody, because I started attending the church I now work at, Resurrection Covenant Church, and it was a church that had been very informed by kind of the reclamation of liturgical forms. So for example, communion every week, uh, prayer of confession every week, following the church calendar, um, and I found myself just taking to it like a fish to water. Uh, the care people took with words, you know, I was in a tradition that a lot of words had been spoken. And as I talked about a lot of that, I found damaging to me, you know, like, we didn't think about how this would affect people when we talked about, you know, millions are going to burn in hell, all your friends will unless you save them. Um, And here I found this kind of careful crafting of words. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And it's like, I want to do this. So that's kind of when the music part, And the uh, careful crafting liturgy part came together, and I kind of discovered, not discovered hymnody, I discovered hymnody uh, for myself, is what
0: I mean. Okay, okay. Well, why don't we we listen uh, to one of your hymns? Let's start with, Come Now, O God, When Our Love is Forsaken. So tell us about this hymn. Uh, how did you come about writing it? Uh, what were the things that shaped your thoughts?
1: Uh, yeah, I, this is one of my favorite earlier hymns. There's a song in the covenant hymnal by Lena Sandell. And Lena Sandell is kind of the uh, Swedish, uh, the hymnist of record in hymn, hymnody in Sweden. Uh, she's kind of the Fanny J. Crosby, if you will. And actually, there's a statue of Lena Sandel outside my seminary building. Huh. And I don't know how many seminary buildings have a hymn writer as the person that's honored. But she wrote Children of the Heavenly Father, day by day and with each passing moment. But in our latest hymnal, which was 1996, so not that late latest, but she has this beautiful hymn called Hide not your face, and it's to this Finnish medley. Medley, no nope, melody that goes da da da
2: da 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 da
1: da da da. Kind of this haunting, mel- haunting minor, melancholy tune, which I love. And later, I found that the Swedes or the Lutherans really love this, and they had set this tune to Lost in the Night. But it felt like this perfect Advent tune. And I was sitting at a Lutheran church. Sometimes I moonlight so I can just go to a church without doing anything. And there was a Saturday uh, service at Holy Trinity here in Chicago. And it was the first Sunday in Advent, the Isaiah text. It was year B, and the Isaiah text was Isaiah 64, I think it is, where it says, you know, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And as I was thinking about that, the the brain of that text came to, or the tune came to mind and it's often are you coming soon are you coming soon and i for that second thought come emmanuel come emmanuel and then i just started come Come now, O God, when our love is forsaken. And I thought of all the times we look to the heavens and say, oh, that you would tear them open and come down. Um, And, you know, I was writing a lot of that writing for that first collection happened during the Trump era and leading up to it. And so there was no shortage of things that felt like places where we needed God to come and be in our midst. So that's kind of how it developed. It was an interesting one because it's triple rhyme, and so that took a little work and crafting. Um, but it's always felt, and I'm my grandma's a hundred percent Finnish, and so the connection to the Finnish tune was also really important to me, and reminds me of my uh grandma who passed a couple years ago.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I learned in my own coming to understand about liturgy in the church year was that in its in its original. Uh, form, Advent was a, a time of penance, like Lent was a time of penance prior to Easter. Uh, and and so your notion of a lament uh, during Advent, uh, to me, uh, roots into that original kind of conception.
1: Yeah, and, and one of the things I like about it is, you know, I always say Lent, or I feel like Lent can kind of be that inward kind of reflective repentance and to me advent's always because of that focus on christ coming back yes it is that preparation but it it feels a little more turned out where we're actually where lament becomes more important not more important but it becomes more about lamenting things as they are and wanting them set right right versus just kind of that interiority right that seems like the lenten thing so that was I mean, I love Advent now. I couldn't imagine not celebrating Advent. So I try to write an Advent text every year.
0: Um, Well, and I like like the fact that you um, kind of talk about uh, how the world, you know, you say our self-serving madness, um, that phrase was a great phrase. uh, When we squander our freedom uh you know those are wonderful uh ideas and 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 you know I think that in my own mind part of the uh, crisis that we're going through uh, relating to our politics and especially as uh conservative Christians are in league uh with the with the Republican right uh when our bedrock of faith has been shaken, uh, that uh, to me there is that sense uh, of, of that happening for many evangelicals and why they, they are uh, in a period of crisis that's making them uh, focus more upon a political answer uh, to that solution.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I'll never understand, I mean, my, my current denomination is still evangelical, it's a different form, but I don't think I'll ever understand growing up in a tradition that was focused on the family, promise keepers, integrity and character matters, uh, to have just sold that all, uh, for 30 pieces of silver, um. It's one of the great tragedies because I do believe there was something to that character. And then to, to have uh, gone in league with someone who, you know, goes against kind of every love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. is not rude. I mean, those are all kind of antonyms for (laughs) the current leadership of the Republican party. So that's always been, and by leadership, I mean, Donald Trump. Um, And so that's been difficult, but also eye-opening and shows how power in all of our traditions, right? I mean, it's easy often to go after the evangelicals, but um, how power corrupts (laughs) and how um, sometimes, you know, one of the things I think a lot about is we need to think both about the means and the ends, right? Like that, you know, when talking about rock, coming out of that water. Like Moses did something good, right? He gave water to the people, but the means by striking the rock, uh, apparently God cared just about as much of the means of how he did it as the ends. And I think uh, this kind of ends justifying the means is going to be really damaging to faith.
0: Do you um, write poetry?
1: I did a little bit. it's interesting, I find hymnody a little so I did my thesis on a woman named Georgia Harkness, my dissertation, and she used to say that she wrote some hymns, uh, Hope of the World, Thou Christ of Great Compassion is probably your most famous. But she says it takes a third rate poet to be a first rate hymn writer. <laughs> uh and I think there's some truth to that because you need to be you need to be a little more obvious. It needs to be understood. So to me, it's hard to write both to switch over that because when I'm writing Hymnody the whole time, I'm thinking, OK, can't be too oblique. You need to understand it on the first sing through. You know, it, I, I'm, I wrote something recently and me and my editor, Adam Tice, are going back and forth about it because the I use the phrase let it be um with a kind of hat tip toward the Beatles, yes um but that can be and i liked it because it can be interpreted in many different ways but the problem is it can be interpreted in many different ways uh and so there's like with poetry that's one of the beauties of it right right but when you're singing in a church setting liturgical setting you might not want people to have 10 different meanings, right especially if two or three of them are really problematic and so, for me, it's hard to write poetry because I have to kind of get behind that place, and that's I find that difficult now.
0: Yeah, because you know, I wonder, uh, you know, I haven't asked Adam this, uh, or you know, but but how that interweave between the fact that you know hymn texts are are often poetry, uh, you know, and how how the writer of hymns considers themselves related to poetry
1: i i often say oh, i think hymns are poetic i don't always use the word poetry because of this kind of thing like they're very specific to a liturgical context and so they have they are poetry of a certain kind i wouldn't say that but they're a constraint they're a constrained type of poetry so i usually say poetic um because of that i have to It has to be a little less subjective uh, for me, but there's also this fine line, right? Because you want it to be poetic enough to not be mundane or just stating the same thing that's been said a hundred times already. So to me, there's a really healthy and and at its best, beautiful tension between that poetry and the necessity of hymnody, which has its, you know, the theological, musical, formal constraints. Of of that particular form.
0: Well, and, and mentioning those three things, uh, that brought to my mind that there are there are similar constraints in the in the painting of iconography.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When you write an icon, it's like this represents this. This repre- this color represents this. You have to use these historic forms, and I think that's the interesting part of hymnody right now is this kind of people are stretching what hymnody is, playing around with forms, um, but also trying to uh, stay true to that heritage in some way. Um, I find it interesting that kind of the more formally conservative uh, hymns are now the ones that are more progressive theologically and the folks that are doing progressive forms are, te- you know, like praise and worship, are tending to have a very conservative theology. Yeah. And I wonder what that's about.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and in my mind, uh, it has to do with the evangel- evangelism dimension. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, needing to uh, convert people means you have to be able to connect with them, and that means staying on the edge Relevant, of, right. of how people communicate and live.
1: I think it'll be interesting i think one of the things i've been challenged with is can you use those forms i mean there's some people doing this like the group the many or uh, can you use more progressive forms with a progressive theology you know and mix those you know i'm kind of in between somewhere here i i use some very traditional forms and then i'm trying to do some new things too so
0: well and that's part of my own struggle with the paradox because uh, I in my interest in creativity uh, want to utilize things that that uh, I find progressive Christians resisting mm. um, you know like like the use of screens in yeah. in worship. Uh, there's all kind of creative things you can do with screens uh, but most progressive churches see that as the carryover of things they see as negative within The conservative part of Christianity.
1: Yeah, there's often a reactionary element in our mainstream church. I also attend an Episcopal church when I'm not, so I kind of have a foot in both worlds, which is both good and bad. (laughs) You see the gifts and the tasks of each. And that to me is one of the challenges of mainline churches is how do you not be just reactionary against those evangelicals that praise and worship, you know, so you start saying like, oh, we can't use screens because the, you know, the big box church down the road does that. Right. Even if we're using them in completely different ways, even if we're engaging with them differently. And to me, that's, uh, you know, just as problematic as accepting everything is to accept nothing because, you know, our neighbor down the road, who we don't really like does this. Right. Yeah. Well,
0: let's listen to a, a second hymn uh, and one okay. you've already made reference to. Uh, about Moses striking the rock. Uh, and this one is Thirsty We Wander the Desert. Uh, so let's listen to it. So tell us about this hymn, uh, because this is an unusual hymn. You know, you, you don't you don't find yeah. this this subject matter in hymns a lot.
1: <laughs> well, so this one came, and it's actually I, it's before Moses struck the rock. It's the first rock. You know, there's a couple of those rock stories in Exodus, and so it was actually the Montree Conference, which the PCUSA runs. They had a their theme when I was the one of the speakers there was something about thirst, you know, I, thirst no more, I think it was called. And they were saying, we, we're doing good, but we have this problem. We're using this Exodus passage. Is it the Mass Mirabeau one or whatever it is? I can't remember. Um, and we cannot find a text. And they didn't ask me to, uh, but I was like, I wanna try to do that. And just that—I that image of rock, bringing forth water, kind of the impossibility of that, that even from rock became really important to me. And one of the things I've been thinking about more is how form, uh, the form of the hymn itself should uh, help with the function or the content. And so that even from rock, I felt like it needed to be repeated, like even from rock, even from rock, even from rock. Uh, each time with a little different emphasis. Uh, So that was written like that. And then I looked at kind of different things. Thirsty we wander, angry we wander, you know, the different ways we come to the desert wilderness and how we need water in those moments. I think the really interesting thing uh, of this hymn was I sent it to Mark Miller, who you might know, who's a Methodist hymn writer, works at, uh, writes beautiful choral music, gospel music, um he sent it back and he had added all at the end. Um and I love the um, harmonies or the the melody of it and the addition, but this text comes up in Lent. And so if you're a church yeah. like <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: oh actually You're not supposed that to that use all Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: and
1: I'm, and I'm like, like, if this isn't gonna get sung and then I was like, Oh, we should use Hosanna because that also then connects to the rocks crying out in the wilderness or the rocks crying out at the Palm Sunday connection. So adding that Hosanna adds another kind of Lenten additional thought that I, is one of the beautiful things that comes out of collaboration.
0: Um, well, like you say, I liked how you, you know, focus upon a particular, um, in some ways crisis. Uh, yeah, thirst absolutely. uh hopelessness uh anger uh that you mentioned in each of those you know uh, that uh, makes the you know the experience of singing the song um, different than than in singing other songs and other hymns mm-hmm. in my mind um, so yeah it's 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 a great hymn. Thank you, uh, and uh, So um, let's let's then listen to our last one, uh, because this one then kind of segues uh, into uh, the more academic focus uh, that you have. Um, when life becomes a contest, uh, draws into the notion that we'll talk about uh, that you had in a couple of the articles you sent me of uh, the impact of our economy uh, upon our world and and not only uh, how that affects us personally but how it does in fact feed into affecting congregational song uh, so yeah let's listen let's listen to that one So talk about this hymn.
1: (laughs) So talk about this hymn. So this hymn came, I've been researching the effects of neoliberalism or late stage capitalism or whatever people call it now. Um, Capitalism as it now exists in the Western world. Um, And I've become more and more convinced, and I'm writing on this, of how it also shapes our worship the image that always comes to mind is i don't know if you've heard there's this famous um, commencement address by david foster wallace who wrote infinite jest um and some other books very popular postmodern writer although he challenges postmodernism in some ways neither here nor there but he talks about at the very beginning of his commencement address he talks about these two fish swimming in water and this Old fish comes over and says, "How's the water?" And the two fish go, "What the hell is water?" Uh, the point being, you don't notice the waters you swim in. Right. Um, and to me, as I've been studying this, to me, it it's the economic these capitalist waters we swim in that we don't even notice. Um, you know, we've been trained to de- to desire things, and desire isn't bad, right? I mean, that's Augustine's whole a kind of thesis is that we desire things, right? And but we need to desire God more. And that's kind of western theology. Um but it seems we've been trained to believe we don't have enough. And so I wrote one hymn before this that was kind of more positive about like we you know we have enough. God is enough. You are enough. It's um, when we strive and we strain and then I wanted to write a little more prophetic one. And so I, this is that one. Um, and I think this one was basically saying, here are some things that happen when this when capitalism takes over. Life becomes a contest. Everything's a competition. Uh, the earth becomes a product. Uh, all gifts turn into commodities. Uh, the church becomes a business. You know, we just model ourselves after corporations. And think that growth is a, a good in and of itself, which may or may not be true, right? The, uh, the growth sustained growth of a human is great. The growth of cancer cells, which are the fastest growing, is terrible. And growth itself is neither good nor bad. Um, and then looking kind of the last stanza being that you know eschatological vision that hopefully we'll get to that point where uh, we're given uh, when the visions and dreams we have are finally embodied in the reign
0: of Christ. Well, you chose to set this one to an English, you know, traditional English folk tune that harmonized by Ralph von Williams.
1: Are you asking why did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, one is I, I have found that, partly because they're folk tunes, right? And folk tunes have often been really good protest songs. You know, you think of, um, I think this is one of the reasons Canticle of the Turning is so popular. Um, that Star of County Down has that Irish uh, folk tune. These folk tunes tend to be longer lines so they can carry a little more. And on this specific one, I appreciate how it kind of nods to it, The other song, Him, it's very famously paired with is G.K. Chesterton's, O oh God of Earth and Altar. And there's some of the same themes there. You know, he talks about the walls of gold and two the swords of scorn divide, take not thy thunder from us, but take away our pride. Um, from sleep and from damnation deliver us. You know, so it has some of those same themes. So sometimes I think using an older tune when you're especially using kind of a harder hitting text can be a good paradox that allows people to enter in. in it, if they were using two, if they were using kind of challenging words with a challenging tune, I think that might break rather than bend um, people. So that's one of the reasons.
0: Well, now, do you, do you, uh, write hymns, uh, or write words, maybe not hymns, but write words, uh, for contemporary music?
1: I have, I I, I write them to, they tend to be more stanzic than contemporary. I mean, if you're talking like contemporary style right or contemporary like i write a lot of contemporary with contemporary hymn tunes but contemporary style i've started doing more uh in that attempt to um kind of play with form open i feel like there's this group of folks like me who grew up evangelical um you know i really dove into hymnody, but there's people who are in between who are like, I like the theology of an Episcopal church or the Lutheran church, ELCA or PCUSA, but the worship style is so foreign to me now. Um, and some people will find that attractive. They like the thing that's different. Uh, but for some, I'm finding that it's a challenge where they, and so I'm trying to figure out, are there songs we can write? And there's groups that are doing this. Um, I think of people like the Porter's Gate, uh, which is a collective that's kind of doing this. Which too. is my
0: intro music, by the way.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, there you uh, go.
0: One, one of their songs. They, I got yeah, yeah. to use part of their song.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, things like that are interesting me more because I think there's people like me or people even, you know, a little who push more against classical, uh, forms that want to sing a richer and deeper theology than they've been given, but don't necessarily want to sing hymnody. Right. Um, so I'm trying to do that more.
0: Yeah, because in my mind, this goes back to what we were talking about, that that progressives tend to reject the music style because of the theology and, and again, who's using it. Exactly. Uh, and so there needs to be, yep. uh, you know, uh, new music composed uh, that that has, uh, theology that, that folks can, can connect with, uh, but also have the music that. Right. There's,
1: there's almost something, I mean, if you want to be welcoming, inclusive, uh, then we also have to think about, are our tunes welcoming and inclusive to groups that can't read music or that's not part of their tradition, you know? So some of the tunes traditional tunes are very hard to sing if you, you know, if you can't, some are wonderful, you know, and easy to sing and delightful, and some are real challenges. And I don't think often our churches think enough about how that form matters too for welcome and inclusion.
0: Well, you know, to kind of venture into your your academic interest, there's a couple that that I want to talk about, but uh, this last statement that you made uh, brings up the fact that you know my training was classical mm-hmm. training, and 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 that carries with it uh, all the notions of colonialism and what counts as good music, and 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 what counts as acceptable worship music, mm-hmm. uh, and and a lot of the rejection of uh, contemporary music uh, is also that it's coming from uh, third world or uh, blue-collar, uh, you know, marginal groups uh, that are singing their own music. Uh, and, and so one of the, um, one of the issues uh, within congregational song uh, has to do with uh, what are the standards uh, of, of acceptable worship music, uh, and how do we uh, use uh, music from other Christian traditions uh, from around the world? Uh, so kind of tell us your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, to the
0: first kind
1: of question, to me there's kind of two questions here. Uh, how do we define what good music is? And then how do we use music from other cultures? So the first, I've always loved I think it's Frank Burke Brown, is it, who talks about ecumenical taste. And one of the things he talks about is every tradition has its own norms for what is good music within that tradition. Right. And I like this because it doesn't say there's no such thing as standards, right? Like sometimes you meet well-meaning people who like feel like they can't make any distinctions between better or worse music because that would be somehow judgmental or. But his argument is instead that kind of, he might not say this simplistically, but let's say each genre has the good in that genre and the not good in that genre. And the problem is Western classical tradition often doesn't understand that it's a genre. It thinks it is music. Um, And so it judges all these other traditions by its standards and find them wanting, but doesn't realize these traditions don't, don't use those standards. They have other standards, but they're not the ones you use. And so I think part of that is then having people who the thing that's been helpful for me, and part of this is because I didn't grow up and I wasn't classically, well, I played violin, but what I play mostly in worship is piano and I never took lessons really. I learned by chords because that's how you did it. And I played saxophone, so I would, you know, knew a little bit about chord structures and jazz. Uh, and so I learned in kind of this other way, and so was always not quite in that camp. And I find that for me, it was people who were experts in those traditions, uh, listening to them, learning and finding out, oh, here's, the, here's what makes good music in this. Uh, and then when I could start doing that in these different traditions, I could start uh, having a better understanding of what makes something good in that context and start developing that what I'm still striving for, which is more of an ecumenical taste. Um, and then the second part, how do we use music outside of our traditions? I mean, that's such, that's the million dollar question right now. Um, I always say it depends on power, partly. So. You know who's using whose music um so if we're using the idea of how to and this is probably the question for a lot of uh folks listening to this is how do mainly white churches use things from other tradition or music from other traditions especially those traditions that you know were colonized or and to me this is so tricky uh i actually love this quote from, I think her name's Kate Graber. She worked on the Mennonite hymnal that just came out, Voices Together. And she says, we can't use this music. We have to use this music. Um, which I really appreciate because it says there, there's so many problems with misappropriation, but there's also a problem in not engaging at all, um, and saying, well, we can't share music. And what does that say about the body of Christ in Christianity? Um, So I think the way we do that has to be, you know, done with respect, done with the understanding that that tradition is not fixed or static. Uh, It needs to be done with uh, practitioners in those traditions being in that conversation and not just us saying, this is the music we want to use. Um, Lim Hong talks about how To use these songs well, you have to keep them rooted in the land from which they came basically. And so many times we treat them more as like cut flowers that we kind of gather and put into a vase that looks nice, but forget the stories out of which they come. And so those are all a piece of that performance practice, you know, all of these questions start to cascade in when you talk about appropriation.
0: Well, and and, uh, you use the, the term hybridity. Uh, and, and in particular in the context of your discussion about uh, the song Waymaker uh, that, that originates out of Nigeria, uh, but obviously uh, shows some uh, influence by Western culture. Mm-hmm. And um, how does the boundary between appropriation and misappropriation uh, and hybridity... Uh, because you know I, I'm thinking about that you know jazz arose out of the african-american culture um, but a lot of white people connected and resonated with it and and then took jazz uh, from their own creativity in, in in its own direction and and some would say well then that's misappropriation that you're you're taking something that's uh, it originates within African American culture and, and, and changing it into white culture. Uh, so how does any culture uh, take something from another culture and apply its own creativity to it, resonate with it? I mean, it's like it's like K-pop, you know, with with hip hop, you know, and here Koreans are are doing hip hop music, uh, but f- with their own creativity you know, using it and adapting it to their own culture.
1: Yeah, yeah making it,
0: sense on that?
1: Yeah, it's such a layered conversation, so I'll give you some of my thoughts and not suggest this is the answer. Right. Because I do, like, we all appropriate music, you know, and so we have to name that in some ways. I think my problem, or not my problem, the thing I've been thinking about more with hybridity is how often hybridity gets rejected even when it originates in a different culture. So Waymakers being a great example. You know, a lot of mainline churches would never do Waymaker, even though they want to lift up the song, they say they want to lift up the song of folks from different regions and sing the global church. Um, and it's largely because it sounds like a praise and worship song. Um, and frankly, I think some would say it doesn't sound African enough. Right. They probably wouldn't say it that, you know, they're like, where are the, you know, hand drums? You know, it's not like the other songs we've heard where it's, you know, like see or come all you people or, uh, songs like that. And to me, that kind of freezing of a culture in a, and it, you know, this is folks from the white folks. To say, this is what your culture has to sound like in order for us to say it's authentic versus uh, saying, oh, you two are already dealing with this. You're in this complex place and you get to decide what your music is Um, and that will necessarily involve hybridity, too, is uh, letting authenticity come from within the culture rather than us or someone else from outside the culture saying this is authentic so that's kind of my waymaker idea and then to the bigger point i think appropriation like i was talking about power will always play a role and i think a lot of times we don't do any type of power analysis so for example k-pop and you know uh when different Traditions that well, how would I say this? I think all of our traditions are going to appropriate. I think the question. There's a few questions that come. One is power. Um, If you are the position of power, if you're historically were the one doing the colonizing, doing the oppressing, one of the questions you have to ask is, uh, you know, if I'm using this music. It's different than if an oppressed group uses those folks in powers music just by the simple power differentiation. And I think there's something to, uh, how would I say this? I think there's an idea that using another group's music also requires you to recognize ownership. You to um, pay for that. <laughs> you to uh, think about copyright issues. You to have enough relationship with folks that you're saying, you know, does this actually resonate? And that doesn't mean you can't use your creativity, but I think it does mean that there has to be more care doing to do that than just to um, continue a narrative where you just take what you want uh, without thinking about ownership, which is, you know, kind of the colonial (laughs) in a nutshell, what colony colonization is, you take what you want, you, you consume it, you know, you, I talk about extract it, right. This extraction model where you just extract what you want, and then you use it and you're the one profiting off of it. And so to me, that's one of the big differences, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, as a last question, Talk about the impact of capitalism, <laughs> uh, as you said, and, and, and you use in, in the articles that you sent me, uh, you know, a couple of the notions uh, of how um, evangelicals, particularly uh, because of the resonance machine that, that you talk about, uh, seem uh, to have this symbiotic influence in relationship uh, with capitalism, uh, but then also the impact consequently, of uh, capitalism on um, music from uh, the global south and east, uh, as opposed to the, you know, the dominant north and west. Yeah. um,
1: So I use this idea, I found it in William Connolly, who's a political scientist, and he talks about the evangelical capitalist resonance machine. Which I know is, you know, like one of those academic terms, I feel like that everyone else kind of rolls their eyes at. But like you said, what it kind of means at its nutshell is that evangelicalism and capitalism share certain values uh, and like growth, um, competition, uh, suspicion of authority. Uh, He, in his article, talks more about this kind of... uh, eschatology they share of who cares what happens it's all going to burn anyways or you know we're going to use whatever we can to make money having a similar apocalyptic strain which i think is a little simplistic the way he uses it for evangelicalism though for some communities definitely true but i see these things like growth and competition like you can see how they start to bounce off each other and strengthen each other and one of the things that happens, I think, is for in worship, in liturgy, it means that when you don't have denominations, as strong of denominations because you're suspicion of a, suspicious of authority, when you want to grow um, and when you're competing to do this, the churches that become kind of the liturgical models become the megachurches. Um, and so you see That these megachurches become kind of the, you know, there's a recent study that showed that between 2010 and 2020, uh, there was 37 of 38 songs that made both the top 25 on CCLI and praise charts had connections to five megachurches and 36 to just four these churches are really giving kind of the imprimatur on what the rest of the evangelical world sings. And the problem is that's a fairly narrow theological range, even which in evangelicalism. Um, and so that forms what gets sung and it tends to be, you know, substitutionary atonement, uh, more theologically conservative general, doesn't really talk about any type of social justice issues, things that wouldn't work in a megachurch by its very nature because you have to have this huge tent. Um, And so that's one of the ways it affects worship, even evangelicalism. And then my point in the mainline article was that one of the things capitalism does, and this is the work of a musicologist, he talks about how capitalism when using other cultures' songs, tends to uh, have this notion of what authenticity means, and it has certain signifiers. So one example he uses is that Irish Celtic music. We have these signifiers like the, you know, the pan whistle, maybe a hand drum of some kind, maybe this, you know, you think kind of "be thou my vision" meets Celtic women, you know, that kind of feel. And and that becomes what authentic means. My argument is that we do the same thing, mainline churches often do the same thing with music from the global south or east, is through this capitalist lens, we decide here's what sounds authentic. In Africa, it has to have, you know, we disregard that there's huge sonic diversity in Africa and say like, it has to have these drums, it has to have a kind of four part harmony, has to be cyclical uh, and then that's authentic. And then those are the things that make it into our hymnal. And I think it gives us a little, kind of, it's a little bit of a virtue signal where we don't get kind of the credit if we sing Waymaker, but we get the credit if we sing Sia Humba, that seems diverse. Uh, and that's capitalism too, that there's this kind of authentic thing that we can take uh, to signify this huge movement and group of people.
0: Well, we could go on yeah. <laughs> yeah. for a long time. You, you can oh, tell oh, I can oh, go long. on. Yeah, for, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, your scholarship is is vital, uh, and I'm grateful you. for it because it's making us think in new ways and important ways. Uh, and the fact that you carry that over into your hymn text uh, and are creating this whole new uh, vocabulary. Uh, And means for us to sing uh, in our worship experience uh, is also vital. Uh, And so I'm grateful
1: uh, for what you're doing
0: and thank you uh, for sharing your time with us this morning.
1: Yeah. And if I can just find something to rhyme with evangelical capitalist resonance machine, (laughs) I'll (laughs) really have the great hymn. (laughs) No, No, thank you so much for taking the time, David. Um, Thanks for your work and all the. Fascinating people you're talking to. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of that good work we're
0: all trying to do. So thank you. Well, you're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In my blog spot, I will include a link to David's bio and his YouTube channel. The music used for this episode was used by permission. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porters Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porters Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate your participation will help me continue this effort thank you for listening and for your support blessings May the words from my mouth